Well, we are in our third week of our lessons and study of the book of Jude. And as we know, the topic of this book is contending for the faith, knowing what you believe, why you believe it, and being able to stand up for it. Now, the past two weeks, we've been talking about the false teachers that were in the church and the problems that they cause in the church and the judgments that's going to come upon them as well as those who follow. Now, we, last week, we ended with this verse in Jude 11. It says, how terrible it will be for them. For they follow the evil examples of Cain, who killed his brother. Like Balaam, they will do anything for money. And like Korah, they will perish because of their rebellion. And we concluded that there was two reasons why Jude is writing this book. And if you read 2 Peter, 2 Peter is almost a, it's a companion to this. It's the same topic written to different people. The first reason was that our job as Christians is to protect younger believers who have not been taught God's word yet, to guard them from things that may be taught, and to guide them in the ways of God's word, the truthfulness of God's word. It's just like parents who guard their children from you know, doing things and being around people and hearing things they shouldn't be hearing. I, uh, Hudson asked me last night to come down and look at his TV. It wasn't, it was, had a message on it. And I said, okay, what's coming on the message? And, well, we have parental guides on our TVs, you know, so they can't just pick up anything. And he didn't know what he was trying to figure out. He was trying to play some game, watch some video, and it was, a, it was restricted. And he says, can you, can you bypass this, Pap? I said, nope. Not, you're not watching whatever. I don't know what it is, but it, was, it got flagged because it was, you know, beyond our parental control. So, no, you're not watching it. And we do that. We protect what comes into our kids, what they listen to, what they hear. And Judah's the same way. He said, look, you know, as younger Christians, we need to guard them what they hear, protect them from things that may not be truthful, that will be harmful for them. And the second reason is, is, I think, to give us a sense of urgency. There's a lot of people out there that are searching for something. You know, the Bible says or we believe that everyone worships something. Either worship your job or your family or your possessions, but everybody worships something. And a lot of people are looking for truth. And our job is to make sure that they get the truth and not be drawn away by things that are false that would draw them away. So our, that's church's job, that's mature Christian's job, is to guard younger believers and, and guard people who are searching for the truth. Keep them away from things that are false. I mean, cults are filled with people who are searching for something and got found by them. So our job is to continue to make sure we contend for the faith. Now, Jew continues in his commentary on these people, these false teachers, who lead others away. Jude 12 says, these men are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualms, shepherds who feed only themselves. Now, in, this t- in Bible times, love feasts were like a big communal meal, like a potluck that they had for the local church of believers, the local group of believers. They would gather around as a family and share a meal together, and then after the meal, they would have communion. It would be like a, a service and a communion. It was a, it was a sacred thing for them to do that. It was an encouragement, but it was sacred. And these guys, when they come, and, and Jude's saying, when they come to these kind of feasts, they're blemishes on the feast that you're trying to have. They're blemishes on the, the sacredness of what you're trying to do. And the thing that came to my mind is, imagine or picture Judas at the Last Supper. 
He's there sharing their meal with them and talking with them and maybe having a good time and, and listening to what everything Jesus says. All the while, he knows what he's going to do. He kind of ruined it for himself. He kind of ruined the tone of the atmosphere because of what he planned to do. Jude calls these folks a blemish or a black stain, kind of like on a white cloth. And it stands out and it ruins everything it touches. These people, when they're at their love feast or these communal meals, they're a, blot, they're, a, they're a blemish on the time that they gather together. And the word blemish here can also mean hidden rocks. A sailor needs to be aware of the hidden rocks in the water. If he doesn't, if he's not aware of those, what happens? He hits them, sinks the ship. Jude's point is leadership needs to be on guard for these hidden rocks. These things that are out there that in a church could possibly let that church run aground and sink it. These guys coming in and being a part of what you're doing and in, in trying to navigate and draw people away, they are the hidden rocks that will sink the ship, sink the church if the church isn't on guard. So instead of a sanctified time of fellowship and communion, their attendance defiles and ruins their whole thing. Now next Jude says he's not only eating with you, he's, the word is feasting with you. I can imagine a guy at a buffet table who just piles on the food. We've all seen those guys, right? They just stack this food on. And they stack it on without regard to anyone coming behind them, leaving food for them. So he's kind of stacking his meal, doesn't care about the folks that are following him. If they have food or not, he's just taking it all. That's the idea he's trying to, to place. This is not some guy you would invite to a fine dining party. It also denotes someone who uses communion as a time of eating the elements rather than using the elements as a time of worship. Now, Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 11. What was happening is people were coming to these meals, these communal feasts. At the time of communion, they would eat the elements as food rather than as the symbols of Christ's resurrection, his death and resurrection. 1 Corinthians 11 says, when you come together, it is, not, is it not for the Lord's Supper? It's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? So the people in Corinth were coming together and using the, the communion time as a time of dinner. That was what they were using. And Paul said, no, you're, you're missing the whole point of communion. It's supposed to be a symbol. You're supposed to be already done eating. Eat at home eat at the communal meal, but at the time of communion, you need to have sacredness and respect for it. And the phrase there in, in verse 12 goes on and says, eating with you without the slightest qualm. And the phrase means without fear. There's no fear of God's judgment upon them. There's no fear of what they were doing. They didn't care that they were doing this. First Corinthians 11 talks about people who misuse communion. And verse 27 says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord 
eats and drinks judgment on himself. Judah's saying, you're, you're inviting these guys to your dinner. It's supposed to be a sacred time. They're gorging themselves. They don't care about why you're doing it. They're there for the food. They're there for themselves. They don't, they're not fearing God. They're not fearing you. And they're not even fearing communion. And you're letting them do that. Jude's saying, you need to watch who you let in to eat with you, to fellowship with you. Communion is supposed to be a sacred thing. You have to have reverence for the Lord while you do communion. And the ones here who are doing flippantly in this church, they're only heaping on themselves future judgment. 1 Corinthians 11 says, hey, there's going to be a time where God's going to judge that. And in 1 Corinthians 11, it goes on to say, that's why some of you are sick and some of you die because you're taking communion in an unworthy manner. And the verse not only applies to them, but obviously applies to us as well. We need to have the right attitude when we celebrate communion. Verse 12 goes on, without the slightest qualms, shepherds who only feed themselves. Now we've mentioned before, it's a serious thing to shepherd God's people. We've mentioned that people who do that will be judged more harsher. James 3.1 says, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And when Jude's writing this, now obviously he didn't have the New Testament when he's writing this, so he's probably thinking of Ezekiel 34 when he writes it. Ezekiel 34 verse 1 says, The, Lord, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? And then verse 10 says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and I will hold them accountable for my flock. True shepherds need to care for the flock. True shepherds need to be on guard for the flock. We need to protect those who are here. We need to guard them from without. Jesus said in John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Preachers can't be hired hands. Preachers got to be God's people not afraid of God's people. A shepherd puts his life on the line for the sheep. If we did a thing years ago on Psalm 23, which is a pretty awesome book. There's a, there's a book we, we studied called The Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23 and it talks about a real shepherd who guy was a shepherd. I know nothing about sheep. I'm not a farmer. But he gives an, an example of how Christ uses the word shepherd and what it means to be a shepherd of sheep. And one of the things he talks about is the shepherd lays, when Jesus says, I am the sheep gate, he lays at the entrance to the sheep pen. And anybody who crosses has to cross, an animal has to cross over the shepherd to get to the sheep. He's the first line of defense against the sheep. Preachers and leaders need to be the first line of defense against stuff that comes in to the church. I remember when I first got here, we had a, a visitor who stopped by and I went to visit him and talk with him. He's an older gentleman. He's a retired preacher. 
And he asked me, he says, so can I preach in your church? I said, well, you know, once I get to know who you are, yeah, we could arrange that, but I need to know who you are. I don't know you. And he got really upset about that. He says, well, I'm a preacher. You should let me preach. I said, I, I can't. Not until I know who you are, what you believe, what you teach. And he didn't come back after that. You got to make sure you know who's talking to your people. Got to protect them from, and there's all kinds of weirdos out there teaching all kinds of weird stuff. So you just got to protect them. When Peter denied the Lord three times, the Lord goes to him at the end of John and says, he asked Peter three times if he loves him, right? Peter kept saying, yes, I love you, yes, I love you. And Jesus' response every time in John 21, 15, Jesus says, feed my lambs. 21, 16 says, take care of my sheep. And verse 17 says, feed my sheep. God, Jesus had forgiven him, but now G, or Peter was now still responsible for the sheep. He's still responsible for the believers. Regardless of what he did in the past, now his mission is to protect those he has charge over. Jude continues in verse 12. He says, these are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit, and uprooted twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackness, the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Again, Jude sets up a more, he does three or four examples in a row, and this is the type he uses, four examples of what these guys are like. Verse 12, he starts, it says, these are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind. Now, this past week, we were hoping that they would blow on by, that there'd be no rain. But them and now, farmers need rain, right? You need rain. Without rain, you have no crops, you have no fruit, you have no refreshing times, you have no cleansing. And he's saying that false teachers provide none of that. Their teaching will not provide refreshing or spiritual fruit. They're like clouds that look like rain clouds. And they come in promising that it's going to rain. But it doesn't rain. And it blows them away. They fail to produce anything of lasting value. They look like men who can give spiritual help, but in the end they don't produce anything. Now God's word is equated with rain. Deuteronomy 32, 2. Let my teaching fall like rain and my words descend like dew. Man, this is still ringing somewhere. Like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. Isaiah 55 says, As the rain and snow come down from heavens and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that comes out of my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Like nice billowy clouds in the sky, these guys are attractive. They promise a lot of great things. They promise they're going to rain God's word of truth down on you. But they can't bring it. They can't bring God's rain, God's word. And so therefore, they're useless. They become like a motivational speaker. They give you a lot of great analogies, and they may be good, they may not be good, but they're not God's word, and they can't transform your life. The second example he gives is autumn trees without fruit and uprooted twice, twice dead. 
Again, I'm not a farmer. Everything I grow, you know, dies. But I hear that fruit trees are supposed to produce fruit in the fall. That's their thing, right? There's fall comes, they're ready to be picked. But now he equates false teachers with trees that have no fruit. They're not producing any fruit. They're just there as a tree, nothing on them budding. Nothing of spiritual value. He's saying these people who come in with all these false promises, they look like a great tree. But when you get up close and you try to get something from them, there's nothing of spiritual value. And there's no fruit to be gleaned from these folks. They produce nothing of spiritual value. And not only are they fruitless, but they're uprooted, which means twice a day. If it's, if it's no fruit, it's a dead tree. If it's uprooted, it's twice dead. So not only are they not producing anything, they're spiritually dead themselves. One of the evidences of, is, one of, the evidences of salvation is the ability to produce fruit in your life. And there's two things to look at. What is their fruit produced in the false teacher's life? If you want to know what they're like, what's their, what's their fruit that they're producing? And what is their fruit produced in the lives of those who follow them? If there aren't any fruit in the leader or the followers, then they have no spiritual root. They have nothing. They are basically uprooted. Matthew 13, 5, Jesus is talking about the parable of the sower and the seed. He says, some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. A good example of someone who has the fruit of the Spirit in their life is, I've heard this analogy and there's probably a thousand of them. It's like a teacup. And the tea's in the cup. When you bump the cup, what comes out of the cup? Tea. When your life gets bumped, what comes out of your life? When something bad happens to you, what's your instant reaction to that? What comes out instantly? If it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, the fruit of the Spirit, then, you're, then you have the fruit of the Spirit. But when you're bumped and something comes out of you, and it's not the fruit of the Spirit, it's your human reaction, then maybe we need to work on the fruit of the Spirit. And if it is always that way, if it's always negative, it's always confrontational, it's always sinful, then maybe you don't have any root. Maybe there is no fruit in your life. And maybe you're either listening to the wrong people or you're not listening and doing what God's Word tells you to do. Verse 13 says, they are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame. Now I like the Discovery Channel. How many watch the Discovery Channel? Now my wife watches the cooking shows, but I like to watch the, the shows where they go under the ocean and find stuff in the bottom of the ocean. I remember when they found the Titanic years ago, I was like, oh, this is amazing, I love it. And I was, I was watching it the other day or I was reading an article about it and they actually found one of the Apollo mission engines at the bottom of the ocean. Uh, I love this stuff. And all these shipwrecks that are down there. And even, you know, they're able to reconstruct what happened on the wreck. But even with today's ability to navigate the seas, 
You know, as much technology as we have, weather and all that stuff, we're able to navigate the seas better. It's still a scary and deadly place. I wouldn't want to be stuck in the ocean in the middle of a storm. And a good storm can sink just about anything. Can you imagine the fear that the fishermen in these times had with that analogy? Wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame. Now, Jude isn't saying that the false teachers have power, but what he's saying is they are arrogant about the power of their speech. They think their speech is very influential. They think their speech is powerful. They think their speech is God-anointed, that they have the power of, of wild waves coming from them. The New, Living, New American Standard says, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam. New Living Translation says they are like wild waves of the sea churning up dirty foam of their shameful deeds. Like a raging sea, they make a lot of noise, but they don't produce anything other than foam. You ever walk along the beach after a storm? Tide goes out. What's on the beach? Junk. Seaweed, garbage, everything. And a lot of times in that seaweed, you'll see foam in there. Sometimes when you listen to these folks, the end result is they have junk and foam. They sound good. They, sound, they may sound great. They think they sound awesome. But the end result is it's just junk. Dirty foam, the Bible says. This junk that piles up in your life because they have no truth behind it. Isaiah 57, 20, again, he was probably thinking about this. He says, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. The only thing that false teachers produce in a life is mud, junk. It has no lasting value. The last analogy he uses is wandering stars. Now, I tried to search this out, and there's... There's two schools of thought on the wandering stars. The first one is referring to the planets and the stars in their fixed positions. Now, if you're a, I'm not, but if you are a sea person, you use those things to navigate by. You look at the stars, you kind of get your sextant on, and you figure out where you are. And he's saying, imagine if those things were wandering. You, you could never map out where you need to go because they're always in different positions. If you, lit, if you go by these wandering stars, if they kept moving, you'd be lost. In other words, if we keep following these false teachers who are leading us really nowhere, in the end, we're going to be lost. The other analogy is they refer to these as comets or meteors, that they're, you know, they're always moving. They're here today and they're gone tomorrow. I remember Hudson was asking me, when, when does Haley's Comet come around again? I said, I can't remember. He says, is it going to hit the earth? I said, I don't think so. He says, is that the, how the dinosaurs died? I don't know. All I can think of is the far side cartoon is the dinosaurs are on the shore as the waves are starting and the ark is floating away. And the dinosaurs said, oh, crap, was that today? <laughs> but, you know, if you try to follow these things, you, they're never in one position, you get lost. If you use those to navigate by, you'll get lost. 
the analogy is false teachers are here today. They will do their harm and they'll be gone before you know it. True Bible teachers of years gone by, we still learn from. We still read. Spurgeon, Moody, you know, all those guys. C.S. Lewis, Luther. We learn stuff from them. They're still valid teachings. And we still know who they are. But people who were teaching falsely in those eras, I don't know who they are. Because they were there for a moment and then they're gone. They're wandering stars. Here today, gone tomorrow. But the end result is the same for both theories. People who lead and those who follow the wrong doctrine will end up, as the verse concludes, by saying, for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Their doom is eternal darkness, which the Bible says is reserved for them. Second Peter 2, 4 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. Reading through First and Second Thessalonians, and Second Thessalonians is about you know, the end times and what's going to happen. And every time I read something like that, I really get, I don't know, worried is the right word, worried about the people who don't know Christ yet. That once, you know, the rapture happens, First Thessalonians 4, and the church is gone. It's going to be a bad, bad time. And if people actually get saved during that tribulation time, they are going to be hunted and martyred. It will not be good to be a Christian other than you're going to go to heaven. But since there's no Holy Spirit, I mean, the church isn't there. Holy Spirit will still be there because people will still get to be saved. But it won't have the influence that the church has today. That's why all hell is going to break loose at that time. The enemy's going to have his way for the next seven years. And we look at the judgment that's coming. The judgment that's coming. Man, we should really be Nervous about the people who don't know Christ. That's why we do VBS. That's why we have Sunday school. That's why we meet on Sunday mornings. Why? Because we want to be prepared for that time. We need to bring as many people with us as we can. The whole point of the book of Jude is that we as believers need to be very careful of who we allow to teach and lead us. Because just as the leaders will be judged and put into hell, so will those who follow them. I mean, there are people that are good people. They're good people. They may go to church. Maybe they don't go to church, but they're still good people. They're not going to make it. Being good isn't enough. And we need to be careful about thinking that being good is good enough. Or the, or the truth that we hear, or the Satan's that we hear to now. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. I mean, know that verse. That's not in the Bible. That's something that we made up to make it sound good for everybody else. Because it does matter what you believe and you need to be sincere at your faith in Christ. 
God has given us his word and he's given us nature so that we are without excuse. Romans talks about, you know, you always get asked the question, what about people who live in the deepest, darkest jungles who's never heard of Jesus? Well, the Bible says in Romans 1 that when people walk outside their, their hut or their tent or their house and they look at nature, they have one of two options. They'll either recognize that somebody must have created all of this or I'm going to worship what I see. I'm going to worship the trees and the grass and everything else. I'm going to worship the earth. And Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. In other words, you, no one's going to have the excuse, I, I, I didn't know. God says, look at the earth. If you recognize, and this is the school of thought, and I, I adhere to it, if, if people walk out of their place and they say, man, there must be something out there that created this, they're going to hear about Jesus. God's going to make sure they hear about Jesus somehow. If they walk out and they start worshiping the ground and the trees, that's what they're going to worship. And the Bible says, you have enough information that you're not going to have that excuse. And, it's, and especially in this country, where there's Bibles everywhere, TV shows everywhere, good or bad, you, you can't say you've never heard the gospel. Although, people in this country have said they've never heard the gospel, which I find amazing, but they can't, they're not going to have an excuse. And Judah's saying, you need to be careful because you're not going to be able to use the excuse. I didn't know. I thought this guy was right. No, you have God's word. You don't have an excuse. Now here's a unique verse. Jude 14 says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of, a, of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way. And all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, why is this unique? Well, because this is not scripture. This is a quote from the book of Enoch. How many have heard of the book of Enoch? The book of Enoch is one of those writings, it's, it's a good book, and has some, you know, it's respected by Christians and Jewish folks, but it's not scripture. It's not part of God's word. Jude never claims it to be an Old Testament book, he never says the Lord told Enoch. He's just using it as an everyday reference that people in that day would understand. That book existed back then. People knew it. And so he's using a quote from the book to express a truth. It would be no different than if I quoted Billy Graham or Chuck Swindoll or Max Lucado. I'm quoting someone who's a writer. The book is a good book, but it's not scripture. There's a lot of people wanting to put other books into the Bible. A lot of people think the book of Enoch is Bible. It's not. It may have good things in it, but it's not biblical. It's not all of it's biblical. He's not endorsing the book. He never refers to it as part of a scripture. He's simply making a statement about the coming judgment 
using a book that everyone knew about at that time, which is a true statement. Judgment's coming. And that just tells me we need to be careful about anyone who puts any book on par with the Bible. You have the Book of Mormon, which they consider equal. You have standards and practices, Catholic dogma, things that are, they claim to be on par with Scripture. And sometimes if they differ, they exalt their version more than the Bible. And we know as Christians, there, there's a lot of good stuff out there, a lot of good reading, things you can quote from, you can take from, but it's not, it's not scriptural. It's not truly God's word. It may be great, it may be encouraging, but if anything that is said contradicts what the Bible says, then what they say is wrong automatically. And if that happens, I, I would say dismiss the book. Verse 16 goes on and says, These men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. Again, talking about those who are trying to lead people astray. New Living Translation says it this way. These people are grumblers and complainers, doing whatever evil they feel like. I read that verse, and what came to my mind? Politicians. They are grumblers and complainers doing whatever evil they feel like. Not all. Just some. In other words, they are out to please themselves by taking advantage of others. Peter uses more colorful language. He says, they commit adultery with their eyes and their lust is never satisfied. They make a game of luring unstable people into sin. They train themselves to be greedy they are doomed and cursed. What do they do? Well, the first thing is they, say, they murmur and complain about their previous life. And they murmur and complain to the point where they get you to be unsatisfied with your life. How many know people that work like that? They murmur and complain about their job and they want you to get murmuring and complaining about your job. And what they're doing is once they get you to be dissatisfied with your life, then they say, well, here's a promise that's going to make your life better. Here's the thing, and you're, it's going to make it perfect. Your life is terrible. I know. Been there. Here's what's going to make it perfect. And they lead you into something that they think is going to be perfect. And it's not. Now, it's okay to want to improve your life. We all want to improve. We want to continue to learn. But we can't be dissatisfied with where we are, where God has us. Because it's easy to find fault in any situation, any negative thing. What's the Bible say? Being, being content in all positions. They're also fault finders. They will try to find fault in whatever you are doing or whatever you are believing. They try to make you find fault in your life, with your spouse, your church, your preacher. Everything's at fault. Everyone's to blame. And then they'll show you a way out that's not your fault. How they do that. Verse 16 says, they, they boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. I like the New Living Translation says, they are loudmouth braggarts and they flatter others to get favors 
in return. How many have heard the term love bombing? Love bombing is what cults usually do to get people to join. They just, I mean, they're constantly loving them and being there and just, and just bombing them with, with love. Not really love, it's, trying, it's attention to get them in, right? But it's not really for you. It's in the end, they want to help themselves. I'm, I watched that series a while ago on Scientology. How many remember that when I was on TV? Leah Remini did that thing on Scientology. And uh, how they, they love bomb people to get them in. But once they're in, they just abuse them. They just, they just take advantage of them and, and do terrible things. Because once they get you, all the flattery and love and compliments go away. Now you're in. And now they keep you by guilt. And you're left with nothing. That's what the folks are like. I was thinking, I wrote this down, what kind of a doctor would just keep, keep telling his patients what they want to hear and maybe not what they need to hear? Maybe you have a small treatable illness and your doctor says, you're fine, you're fine. Go home. What happens? Well, that small treatable illness now becomes a larger untreatable illness because the doctor didn't tell you what you needed to hear at that moment. Did your doctor care about you or love you when he told you everything was fine? I'm going to say no. Would you as a parent just keep telling your child that everything they do is okay with you? Yeah, Johnny, three times five is whatever you want it to be. It could be 50, it could be 100, whatever's good for you. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, play in the street. No problem. You want to play in the street? Absolutely. I saw a, uh, several photoshopped pictures that was on Facebook the other day. And it was, the context was, every time my wife calls me to ask me how the kids are doing because I'm babysitting them, I'm sending her these pictures. And they are, they are photoshopped pictures of the most dangerous things you can have. These, you see it? They had this one, this pelican, flying away with the baby. <laughs> then they had one baby on top of a 10-foot ladder by himself painting. And then they had him on a, on a cliff looking down at the ocean at a very, you know, 100 feet down. Then they had him holding an a electrical socket with a screwdriver. All these things your kids would want to do if you let them, but you don't let them. And they may not think that you love them when you tell them no. But as your child gets older, you allow them to do more. You allow them to experiment. And you'll go to doctor visits when they're great doctor visits. And nothing really is wrong. You got a clean bill of health. It's like a church service or Christianity. There's going to be times where you come to a church service and you are just blessed and you leave really encouraged and challenged. Man, this is awesome. And there maybe comes times when you come to a church service and you feel like you left beat up because something they've been said or done that, oh, man, he's talking about me. I, I need to change that. I need to, I need to do something. 
There's going to be tremendous times in your life that are a blessing and encouragement. There will also be times in your lives that are going to be challenged in your faith. Warren Wiersbe says, a, an untested faith is no faith at all. You can have faith all day long until it's tested. Once it's tested, then you know what's going to happen. I said before, I'm, I'm not an electrician, but I do some. I have, I'm not afraid of it, but I have a healthy respect for it. And I'll wire up a light switch, and I'll stand back from the light switch, and I'll turn the breaker on to see if it works. And if the breaker goes pop right away, I know it's not right. It's not, not good until you test it. Faith isn't good until you test it. So something comes in your life that challenges what you believe or makes you doubt. Your faith isn't tested. We did a series a while ago called um, Doubt. Doubt. Faith or doubt? It's okay to have doubt. How many know that? It's okay to have doubt. Why? Because when you have doubt, now you go to figure it out. You go to try to figure out what, okay, I doubt this. What is... I need to find out if it's true or not. I need to answer this doubt that I have. And it makes you search it out to see whether your doubt is true or not. So it's okay to have doubt. And God allows you to have doubt, so you do check it out. So you're able to now verify for yourself that it's true. I've given the analogy before about driving. You can read every book, watch every video, Learn everything there is to know about driving, but you don't know how to drive until you actually drive the car. And you keep driving it, and you learn how to drive it. All that stuff you learn in class and the books is good, but it's not enough. Until you drive the car and know how the car reacts, you can't drive. Until you're tested, until God puts in your path a thing that makes you actually do what the Bible says in a situation, you're not going to know if it works. When I was a new Christian, and we were, you know, we were always struggling paycheck to paycheck, and I knew I wanted to tithe. And I'm, I'm searching God's word to find an out. There's got to be an out here. And I came across a couple that were, you know, if I twisted it and, and made it, appear like what it doesn't really say, then I'm an out. And I said, no, okay. God's word says this. <sighs> okay, here we go. I'm going to tithe, write the check. Until I did that, God wasn't able to show me that it worked. Once I did it, and I can't explain it, 90% goes more than 100%. It works. Now, you're not going to get a check in the mail. You might. But maybe your car lasts. My car lasted 194000 before we finally had to get rid of it. <coughs> this one has 110 on it. <coughs> Until you actually put into practice what God's word says, you're not testing it. God wants you to test it. You're going to be challenged in your faith from without and from within. The ones on the outside are kind of easy to spot. It's the ones on the inside you have to watch out for because they sound good. They may use scripture, but you need to be sure that what you're listening to is true. 
Next week, Jude is going to tell us how to do that. This church, one thing I've noticed about this church and people have said to me, a lot of love in this church. A lot of love for people in this church. And that's great. And we love everyone who comes in. We want the best for them. But we're also here to tell you the truth. We wouldn't really love you. Just like the doctor really didn't love his patient if you told him everything's good. Or you didn't love your child if you let him do anything you wanted to do. You tell him the truth and you prevent him from doing things because you know in the end it's going to hurt him. And so hopefully what we do here and most churches do is try to tell you the truth. Let the Holy Spirit speak that truth to you. So when you leave, it stays with you. And when you get home, you remember it. The Bible says we'll bring it back to your mind. And you'll not do or, or maybe do what God's challenging you to do. The tithing thing was an example. Until I did it, I didn't know. But now, every week, God's faithful. And as you get older in the Lord, there'll be more things that God does for you. It's like a a child who's three has very little responsibility. When they're teenagers, give them more, right? So they learn and they grow. And God will encourage us as well. God will challenge you to grow, take the next step, whatever that next step might be. We have water baptism coming up next week. That's the next step. New believers or people who've been Christian for a while haven't been water baptized. That's the next step. Then from there you grow. Everything God's word challenges you to do, if you do it, you grow and become mature. The more you study something, the more you do it, the better you become at it. The more you drive, the better you become as a driver, hopefully. Although I know some kids in high school, man, that I'd have never given them licenses. Just didn't have any depth perception, didn't, couldn't judge where they were. But when you study and you practice and you do what God's Word says, you grow and mature. And the more you mature, the more you're going to be given. <laughs> when you're in high school, your parents take care of you pretty much pay the bills. When you become married and an adult, what happens? Oh, now you got to do that yourself. And it becomes harder. And you're more mature and you all of a sudden the things of life start pouring down on you. But if you've been grown up right, you're prepared for that. You're ready for that to happen. And if you're not, then you're not prepared for it. And it takes you by storm. That's why we want to mature people so when things come your way, you are ready to hit and face the storm. Would you stand as we close this morning? <clears throat> you bow your heads with me for a moment. Before we pray, maybe you're new in this church, maybe you've been here for a lot of years but you've never really made a commitment to Christ you've been a church goer I know what that's like I was a church goer but I never made a commitment to Christ until God got my attention and maybe God's getting your attention this morning 
that it's not a religion, it's not a church service, it's not being in a church that saves you. It's a personal relationship with Christ. It's realizing that you are a sinner, like we are all sinners. And that nothing can cleanse you from that sin except what Christ has done for you on the cross. And without that forgiveness, as we said earlier, judgment is coming. Judgment isn't really meant to scare you. As we've heard before, it's meant to prepare you. Prepare you for what's coming. We want everyone to know Christ, to not be a part of that judgment. If you're here and you've never really, you can't pinpoint a date in your life where you come back and say, you know what, on this day, I committed my life to Christ. If you can't figure that day out, then you probably need to do that. And if that's you, and you really feel the Holy Spirit drawing you, thinking about God, the Bible says that's God making you think about Him. And that's you, and you want to change your life, have a transformed life. I want you to raise your hand. I'm going to pray with you this morning. For the rest of us, Father, we thank you that we have your word. We thank you that there are, there are a lot of good teachers out there, a lot of good Bible folks that are out there teaching the word. But Lord, there's also a lot of things out there that aren't true and that will take us away. I pray for each of these folks that you would give them discernment, that the Spirit of God would quicken them, that they would, as they read something, the Spirit would say, ah, that's not it. And they would know and they would be drawn back to the truth because really, Lord, the Word says the truth will set you free. Lies will entrap them. Truth will free them. And truth is the only thing that's, that really is going to matter. So, Lord, I pray that you would equip them with your Word, equip them with the power of the Holy Spirit, and allow them to grow and mature into who you want them to be. And as, as disciples of Christ and as Christians, they will reproduce. They will have other people come to know Christ because of them. Allow them to be what you've called them to be. And these younger folks that are here this morning, Lord, they're the next generation. I just pray that you would equip them to take our place when we're gone. That this church does not fall away but you install and you continue to raise up leaders and solid Bible preachers and, and teachers that we continue to teach the word for years and years and years should you tarry so that when you do return, we will be found faithful. Lord, I pray your blessings upon each person here and their families. Allow them to really experience you in a, in a personal way so that we hear testimonies of your goodness in their life. So, Lord, I commit each person to you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. 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 God bless you. Have a, have a great week.